how much golf do you have to play before you can think of yourself as a golfer? How many miles do you need to log each week before you can call yourself a runner? How many hours must you spend each week reading before you can really think of yourself as a reader? Does it matter what your handicap is or how fast you are or what kind of books you read? Is it the frequency that matters? Or maybe it's the amount of time you spend or perhaps even the amount of pleasure you derive from a particular activity. For example, if I only go skiing once every 10 years or so, but I really, really love it when I do, can I call myself a skier? I bet it depends on whom you ask. How long do you need to live in Arkansas before you can call yourself an Arkansan? Can you call yourself an American even if your citizenship is in another country? And can you think of yourself as belonging to another place if your home is here? As soon as you have a child, do you think of yourself as a parent right away? Or does it take time before that truth sinks in? And once it does, could anybody ever take that identity away from you? How often do you need to think about Jesus in order to call yourself a Christian? How much time must you spend sitting in church or saying your prayers or reading the Bible before you can call yourself a follower of Jesus? How good of a person must you be before you can call yourself a saint? Is there some ledger of sorts where all your good deeds and bad deeds are recorded and if the good deeds outweigh the bad, do you earn the label saint? Can you think of yourself in that way? And if not, are you stuck with the self-proclaimed label of sinner your whole life? Sometimes it feels like our identity is relative, that the labels we give ourselves depend on how we stack up against other people. But when it comes to who we are in God's eyes, there is no sort of, there is no halfway, there is no in-between. When God looks at us, God sees beloved children who are part of God's family. When you look in the mirror, whatever it is you see cannot change that fact. But learning to see in yourself what God sees can make a world of difference. It's been a long, long time since we celebrated a baptism here at St. Paul's. It's been since January the 12th. That's 23 Sundays, almost half a year. Normally, we would have celebrated baptisms at the Easter Vigil, and again when the bishop came to visit, and again on the day of Pentecost, but the pandemic has forced us to wait. 
When baptism is a regular part of a congregation's life, the words that we say in the liturgy, and more importantly, the mysteries that those words represent, they begin to work their way into our collective conscience. Without repeated exposure to them, however, the truth that we proclaim at the font begins to fade from our memories and lose its place in our daily lives. So when we encounter the strange words that Paul wrote in Romans 6 about baptism, we risk not knowing what to make of them. Do you not know, Paul wrote, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Has it been so long since you were a part of a baptism that you forgot about the death part of the liturgy? I jest, of course. I don't think time has much to do with that sense of forgetting because when we picture baptisms in our mind, we don't think about death, of course. We think about the beautiful things, about the little baby and the white gown and the splash of water and the new candle and the new life that all of those things point us toward. But where do you think that new life comes from? It doesn't come from nowhere. That new life comes when that little baby that baptismal candidate is united with Jesus Christ in Christ's death in order that that candidate might be raised with him, might be reborn with him into that new life. We don't do a lot of dunking here at St. Paul's, only once a year in August and then not even every year. But even when we're splashing, sprinkling, effusing a child or an adult with water, that water is for us a symbol of burial. As the water goes on our head, we are buried with Christ. A part of us must die. It must die in order for us to be raised to that new life. We must die in order that death itself has no claim on us anymore. Paul uses shocking language to describe that change that happens within us, language that was shocking in the first century and language that remains shocking today. We know that our old self was crucified with him, Paul writes, so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin, for whoever has died is freed from sin. Paul wrote at a time when he and the early church were still trying to figure out how to make sense of the Christian faith. As they tried to understand who Jesus was and what it meant to follow Jesus, they had to wrestle with the crucifixion. The cross was a scandal of the highest order. If Jesus really were God's son, why would God let God's anointed one die upon the cross? How could that be possible? As he wrestled with that truth, the answer Paul offered to the Romans is that Jesus died on the cross so that we might die there with him. So that through baptism, we too might be crucified, at least that old self within us. 
We must die so that we may be raised to the new life of God. For Paul, death is our emancipation. Now, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the only chains Paul ever wore were the consequences of his own free choices. But the image that Paul used to convey the radical change that happens within us when we are baptized, when we die with Christ, is that of a slave being set free. Before our baptism into Christ's death, there are two forces that have a claim on our lives. God who made us and sin that tries to pull us away from our creator. But once we die with Christ, we are raised to a new life, a life in which sin and death have no more power over us. From that moment on, to use Paul's image, we have no master but God. But Paul knew that words couldn't always make that truth plain. Paul knew that even after we've been baptized with Christ into Christ's death, we can have a hard time seeing that new life in our own lives. We might belong wholly to God, but sin remains all around us. Not only do we fail each day to live up to the image that Christ has given us, but the consequences of sin bear down upon us in ways beyond our own choosing, ways like poverty and greed and addiction and racism. We may have been made whole, but the world is still broken. In the eternal sense, we may be immune to that brokenness, but in this life, its sharp and jagged edges still cut us in real and painful ways. What do we do about that? The answer Paul offers the Romans and us is as powerful as it is elusive. No matter what the world around us may want us to believe, Paul writes that we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word that Paul uses there, consider, is only the second imperative he's used in the whole letter to the Romans. Everything else he's written has been descriptive theology, but this, this is the moment when Paul tells us what to do about what we believe. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In this context, though, the word consider means a lot more than think. It means reckon or count or credit. It's the same word that Paul uses when he writes how Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. But this time, the work of crediting is on us. We must credit ourselves. We must identify ourselves, consider ourselves, not the way the world would see us through sinful eyes, but the way God sees us. Even and especially when sin would have us believe that God's reign will never be complete, we must recognize, we must consider 
that we are already completely within that reign, even if we can't see it in the world around us. But that kind of consideration takes practice. It requires a faith that is more than intellectual or emotional. We must take what became true for us in the past at our baptism and what will be true for us and the whole world when God makes all God's promises complete. We must take past and future and make that truth present here and now. We must see within ourselves what God sees, that we are already God's full children, and that any part of us that would stand in the way of God's claim on us has already been put to death with Christ. When we know that about ourselves, that truth begins to work its way into our hearts and minds and lives. It shapes us into the image of Christ. It works on us until the life we live in this world reflects the life we have been given by God. So consider, think, reckon, credit, identify yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In a world in which hatred, suffering, illness, and death are prevalent, it takes real strength of faith to see that truth. Normally, we have the Eucharist to help us. At the altar, we get a glimpse of the fulfillment of our baptismal identity, the body of Christ becoming the body of Christ. But during this pandemic, we have to find other ways to glimpse that truth. Read the 23rd Psalm or read Luke 15. Sing Jesus loves me when no one else is listening or hum this little light of mine. Spend time each day in quiet prayer or call an old friend just to say I love you. Open your prayer book and read through that service of holy baptism or splash some water on your face giving thanks for the new life that God has given you. However you do it, find a way to embrace what God sees within you because the world would hide that from us. Those little gestures don't make God love us, but they remind us how fully we are loved. When we remember that, when we consider ourselves as truly beloved, we can live the new life that God has given us in Christ Jesus.